Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of California State University, Sacramento. Today, I'm chatting with Von Nguyen Marshall about Between War and the State, Vietnamese Voluntary Association in South Vietnam, 1954-1975, out in 2023 with Cornell. Dr. Nguyen Marshall is an Associate Professor of History at Trent University, where she specializes in modern Vietnamese history, focusing on associational life, civil society, and the Vietnam War. She has published a number of articles, as well as co-editing The Reinvention of Distinction, Modernity in the Middle Class in Urban Vietnam, with Lisa Drummond and Danielle Belanger, and her first book, In Search of Moral Authority, The Discourse on Poverty, Poor Relief, and Charity in French Colonial Vietnam, which came out in 2008. Dr. Nguyen Marshall, Vaughn, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you, Mike. This is so, this is such a pleasure. Thank you for, you know, doing a little podcast on me. Yeah, and um, just full disclosure here, I'm super excited because we were both graduate students doing research in the archives in Hanoi in 1997, and we were literally archive buddies for a couple of weeks, couple of months, and so it's super great to see you again and to I catch know, up. it seems so long ago. So long ago, and I was saying before the podcast, Hanoi has changed so much, and and all you current graduate students working in Vietnam, oh, uh, when we were your age, <laughs> the archives are a whole other story. <laughs> That's another podcast. Oh God, just the change in the archives. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Bunch of bunch of old scholars grousing about stuff. <laughs> then the new building's fantastic. The, yeah, um, the yeah, great. So, um, hey, before we um, get into your book, um, Between War and the State, Vietnamese Voluntary Association in South Vietnam, 1954, excuse me, 1975, that's the last time I'll give the full title. Um, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you came to be the scholar that you are? Okay. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, well, you know what? I started out... Uh, doing um, biology, studying biology, you know, a, a typical of a, a lot of um, immigrant kids who were, you know, parents wanted us to be physicians, medical doctors, uh, but I got derailed and became uh, excited about history and, and be, you know, got my history degree. And I was actually going to do um, Russian history. I wanted to do a, a thesis on Russian history, but... I was too. <laughs> yeah, I was too. But I, but, I, but I flunked out of Russian language. Oh, so, I didn't even. <laughs> so I tried something easier like Vietnamese. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, well, I was going to write my thesis, um, my my undergraduate thesis um, on Russian history. And the Russian professor there, um, he was at Berkeley during the 60s. And we got talking about Vietnam. And he realized that, you know, this is a really important topic for me to delve into. And he's encouraged me to to do something on the Vietnam War. And so that's what I did. Um, and the away I went. So, you know, thank you so much to Dr. Norman Pereira at Dalhousie University in, in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia for for that direction or that guidance, um, or else I might be struggling with Russian <laughs> language <laughs> courses and flinging o- out o- like... O- <laughs> Yeah, very, I don't even very, know what that very, means. Very difficult. <laughs> I, I had, I had to. I knew it was things weren't going well when I was review with the with the the tutor. I was looking at antonyms, and uh, he gave me plojo, which is bad. And I didn't know what the antonym to plojo was because I'd never seen anything but bad on my quizzes. Oh. <laughs> 
And then you, you, you saw how I struggled with the Vietnamese too. Um, so, <laughs> but French, you, did, you did great. <laughs> but you know, it, it really made sense to me to pursue Vietnamese, you know, not only, you know, is Russian very difficult, but, um, you know, um, you know, my life was profoundly changed by the Vietnam War. And so there was a personal connection, personal thirst to understand it. Um, so I think that was a really a good, uh, good sort of suggestion from from um, that professor. And so um, I started to work and, you know, we, we were together in the archives. I was working in the, uh, the archive number one, looking at French colonial uh, document, you know, the documents from the colonial period. And my first book, as you said, is um, in search of moral authority. I was looking at issues of poverty and poverty relief, uh, how they were handled rhetorically and also uh, in in practice by both French officials and Vietnamese writers and activists. And so I was doing a sort of comparison and also an analysis of that. Um, but the reason I focus on the French period, um, because in the mid-1990s, um, it was not easy to get access to material relating to the Vietnam War or the Second Indochina War. Um, and so that's that's what I, I you know, decided to do to, to sort of gain easier access. Um, but now, um, well, when I started my second book, uh, things are much easier. Um, the archives uh, were more open to foreign researchers and, and archive number two was open to foreign researchers. And so uh, I was able to pursue a, a thesis, a, a, you know, a, a research project on the RVN, the Republic of Vietnam. And uh, so, just, yeah. just for the mm -hmm. listeners and, um, and, you know, graduate students may be going off. Archives number one is the pre-1954 collection in Hanoi. Archives two is in um, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City. That's right. Yeah. And what's 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 in there? Oh, it's a, it holds the um, documents of the Republic of Vietnam, so mm -hmm. South Vietnam. Yeah. So they're there. Yeah, and it's archive just, number three. In the, yeah, in the lot. Are there, yes, it... there's archive number four. So uh, there's yeah. another archive number. Uh, there's archive number three in Hanoi. Yeah. That yeah. that's about. That's for all the material of the DRV, yeah. Um, yeah. and 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 I think and beyond. Um, you know, 1954 until yeah. whatever. Uh, and then in in 19, uh, and there's a one in Dalat as well. I have never been to the one in Dalat. So. I know, I know, I, I haven't either. And uh, I know Eric Jennings and a few other people have been there and they said it's great to work there. Actually, somebody on Twitter was just posting pictures of it. It's in a, the archives in a um, an old villa and there's a pool behind it. Wow. And the pool was drained, but like how delightful to have a pool at the archives, you know? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, there's lots of vacation paradise. Um, so, so your first project um, um, was on... Um, the the discourse around charity and poor relief and I, th I found it really interesting that it was actually you know even though these books are in two different time periods there's some similarity right because you're you're looking at civil society and associational groups and um um i, th I, th I thought that was a, a very because i've read and i think i think i reviewed um you did your, you... your book that was a while ago you were very nice <laughs> yeah it was, a great, it was a really good book and added some really good nuance to um vietnamese society in the colonial era um but there, it's interesting there's that I, I reading this book there's like that thematic thread across this time period 
Um, You're right. You're absolutely right about that. And I didn't really think much about that. I wasn't trying to do that, but it, uh, I guess I was always trying to get at what, you know, Vietnamese people were doing, how they were responding to the different uh, circumstances, you know, during the French period, what were they doing? And, and one of the easier things to get at, you know, a, a way of, of getting at that is to look at what they were doing in public. You know, you know, ordinary people don't keep, don't write down things, don't have a lot of journals or memoirs and such, but their activities, their public activities really is something that provides historians with some, some, some clues about what they were doing. So I think, I think that was, that's why I, I sort of fell back into looking at these activities um, because of what the access it gave me to what people were doing. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right yeah. about that. There's that yeah. connection. Yeah. I think that's a really smart methodological approach. I mean, uh, both, uh, especially with like with the first book in the colonial era where like you get someone like me who just works with the, the official French archives and it's so filtered through what the French perspective is. And yeah, with the material that I use, it's difficult to really capture Vietnamese agency, Vietnamese voice, because it's always filtered. It's always filtered, always filtered. Whereas you're looking at these associational societies and it's it's what they're doing that's, you know, slightly outside the uh the control of the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So before we get in uh to the book Between War and the State, um, would you please give us a little bit of the historical context uh well actually both the historical and the historiographic context of the republic of vietnam um you know first the the history what what was the republic of vietnam um you know i i think you you lay out clearly there's actually two republics there's the first republic and the second republic but we you know we call this period the republic of vietnam or south vietnam it's got a a, a number of different names so what you know briefly what what is what is the history here. Sure. Yeah. So you're right that there are two distinct phases um, uh, that we that people often refer to the First Republic, 1954 to 1963, and the Second Republic, 1967 to 1975. And 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 these two um, republics were separated by the interim period of 1963 to 70 uh, to 67. Um, that that was the interim period was a period of military rule that saw many governments come and go. The First Republic was under the 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 um, the leadership of Ngo Dinh Diem. He was the first. Uh, First, he was a prime minister, then later president. Um, so first president of the first republic, and then when he was overthrown, you have this period of, of basically political turmoil. Well, um, and then uh, the second republic was set up with a new constitution uh, and uh, under the presidency of Nguyen Văn Thiel, who, who, can, who remained uh, the president. He was elected again for the second time. Um, and so he, he was uh, president until 1975, or 74. Yeah, he, he I think, resigned. Uh, sorry, I, I, don't, I can't remember when he resigned, but until toward the end of the war. Um, um, in any case, though, those are the sort of the period, but um, the term Republic of Vietnam uh, basically refers to the state that is south of the 17th parallel. So many people, including myself, use the term South Vietnam to refer to the state. At the time of the division, 1954, when Vietnam was divided north and south, uh, according to the Geneva Accords, um, South Vietnam's official name was the Associated State of Vietnam. And the Associated State of Vietnam was a semi-independent polity that the French had created 
back in 1949. Uh, and this was created as a concession to non-communist Vietnamese nationalists. Um, the French wanted to, to, you know, get their support in the the first Indochina War, so they try to lure and 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 and, and uh, woo non-communist Vietnamese nationalists uh, to join this semi-independent state. But in 1954, when Ngo Dinh Diem uh, became uh, prime minister of the state and the country was divided, Diem um, named this the state of Vietnam. Um, but then in 1955, he then established the Republic of Vietnam. So. You know, to, strictly speaking, the Republic of Vietnam is a, a state that existed from 1955 until 1975. Um, so, um, yeah, you are, <laughs> it's a lot of names, but I'll, I'll refer to it as South Vietnam um, so that, the, you know, this for simplicity. Um, and, and the historiography of South Vietnam is is really interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and it's it's an area that's really experienced a great deal of of growth, but also but also just for any non specialist listeners, um, there's one underline that um, the um, the uh, this division of North and South comes out of this 1954 um, uh, Geneva Agreements, which. W- wasn't necessarily going to be a permanent situation, but sort of, sort of slowly slid into that. Right. Um, when, when, do, when does the leadership of um, the Republic of Vietnam start to think of itself as, as a state that's going to be there for a while, as opposed to this temporary division, or is that, a, is that a fair question? Yeah. I, you know what, I, I, I don't know what, people how people perceived um you know i think that people uh really um probably thought that that after two years um of just reselling things that that there would be elections elections would be held and people would be able to um reunite the country i I think a lot of people might have thought that i'm not quite sure that's never uh you know but, you know, my own parents, um, they left the, the North um, and, uh, in 1954 because they were my, you know, they were Catholics and they were landowners. And um, so they uh, they were afraid of communism. And so they went to the South. And, and I think it, in the back of their mind that that the country would be um, somehow reunited, uh, unified. Um, but I think by the end of the, tax, the two years and, and you know, um, they probably lost hope um, of, of that happening. Um, yeah, that's a great question. It'd be something to, to sort of uh, examine in terms of what people were thinking in terms of how, how permanent. I mean, I'm sure uh, the same question could be asked with South Korea. And such. Absolutely, yeah. right? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And, but, sorry, I didn't mean to catch you off. No, with that's, that's if, fine. That's a great question. Just, just for the context. Yeah. Another yeah. thing that you just touched on that I think is really, also mm-hmm. really important is that there's an influx of Northerners uh, fleeing uh, fleeing the regime, oftentimes Catholic, oftentimes landowners, but not not always. Sometimes people just, you know, fleeing that chaos and um, and head to the South. So that 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 creates this. I mean, I think that's one of the unique things about South Vietnam is that you really start to have this cultural mixing at this time period where, you know, prior to this, North and South cultures are pretty different. But now you have the influx of um, uh, tens of thousands of, of Northerners in, into into the South. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that that created a, a really a lot of challenges for the South Vietnamese uh, authorities, uh, for the South Vietnamese, you know, the, 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 the local population who had to accept this influx of Northerners who spoke a very different, who spoke with a very different accent. Uh, and, and it was very challenging for the Northerners too, to have left their land and homes and ancestral graves and come to a place where they've never been. Now, you know, think of, you know, we travel a lot these days, but back then in, in, in the mid 50s, for especially for the population of, of Vietnam, people didn't get to travel. They, you know, leaving their little village or little town was a big deal. So to, to pick up everything and go to the South, you know, wild South, I don't know what people thought of the South, you know, yeah. uh, was really intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is, there is a long-term, uh, cultural difference between the North and the South, you know, with the, um, the North, you know, being, you know, more Confucian, more in the Sinitic world. I don't want to generalize too much here. And, yeah, you know. and that, I mean, this is, this is a huge, um, minefield in, in Vietnamese studies, right? But, <laughs> but, the, but the South being much more mixture of Northern Vietnamese traditions with, uh, Khmer and Cham and, and, you know, culturally, religiously, um, you know, a lot of Theravada, and Mahayana Buddhism mixed together. I mean, it's so much more blending and more fluid um, in contrast with um, you know, with the north area around Hanoi. And then um, you have the central region too. The people there also saw themselves very different, you know, culturally, and um, and their accents are d- difficult to understand. And so, oh, so trust it's, me, it's, I, it's, I, I learned the northern accent, and I got back to California, and I wanted to practice my Vietnamese, and all my students were from the south, and I, and I couldn't understand them. They're like, "Ah, you sound like a northerner. You sound like a communist." I was like, "Well, <laughs> I, just, I sound like someone trying to learn your language." <laughs> but, oh, but, but, but anyway, yeah. there there is yeah. there is this cultural difference the economic difference so it, it must have been really um mm-hmm. uh, yeah. challenging for the uh for the the northerners and, and 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 also just to create this vietnamese state and society right yeah um before i forget mike just earlier i, I mentioned that you know Ngo, um Nguyen Vang Thieu, I, and i said i I thought he resigned in 1974. That, that's so silly of me. I, I I just got too excited. And for he he he, you know, he was in pre- he was president until 1975. Just just for you listeners, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I don't even know the basic history. Anyway, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, okay. And, and you can if you go to um um the Saigon Ho Chi Minh City today, you can tour the presidential palace and and the museum is like what it was like in April, 1970, you know, and like the, the offices and, the, and I think it's such a fascinating building, but anyway, well, okay. So um, the other thing, and I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but the, um, the historiography, and this is really interesting. Cause like the, I think that in Vietnamese studies, this has been an area of such dynamism in the past couple of years. I mean, there's so many great books coming out about South Vietnam. And I think, I mean, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're seeing a real revision of um, South Vietnamese history and some of the things that, you know, I learned in the 90s are really being challenged. So what's historiographically what's going on with the history of South Vietnam these days? Yeah, so it's very dynamic and and exciting. Um, You know, like back in, I think, 1990, um, U.S. diplomatic historian George Herring was one of the first ones who sort of like in writing 
bemoan American historians' lack of understanding about South Vietnam, and in in a way, you know, sort of encourage more research in this area because he said we don't, you know, that Americans did not know very much about their uh, their Vietnam War allies. And anyway, so Philip Catton was the, one of the first historians to take up this call, and and his book he wrote a book on Golden Zeum. Um, and that book broke the mold in that it took seriously Zim's perspectives and aspirations rather than assigning Zim, uh, you know, a, a one-dimensional role of uh, an American puppet or as an incompetent dictator. Um, Catton was really trying to understand Zim's actions and to provide readers with some uh, insight into what Zim was trying to achieve. You know, he had... He actually had goals and hopes. Um, and so since then, more works have been published that afford uh, agencies to Vietnamese political leaders and, and military leaders. Um, so you have a whole slew of you know, great work by Jessica Chapman, Edward Miller, uh, Jeff, Jeffrey Stewart, Sean Fear, Nguyen Chan, um, George Vieth, uh, Robert Brigham, Andrew Weiss, and and a lot more. Um, and you have also worked by people like Heather Stirr, Sophie Quinn Judge, um, Olga Dor, and other who look more at society, Viet- South Vietnamese society. So there's a lot of wonderful stuff that sort of that that provide a corrective to not only South Vietnam but the Vietnam War itself. Uh, you know, because this was one of the fighting party, one warring parties. You have the Americans, you have the DRV, and you have the RVN. Um, so to understand that, you know, that side, one side of, of that is is really important. Um, the revisionist piece in all these work is that the, these historians use Vietnamese language primary sources um, to get at Vietnamese people's point of view. Um, they 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 they're, they they don't try to justify or gloss over these people's mistakes, the South Vietnamese mistakes, but they try to help um, us understand why they did the things they did or what why they chose made those choices. Um, so it gives us a better understand what the that what the war was about from the Vietnamese perspective. Um, what were the Vietnamese you know the South Vietnamese fighting for? What was at stake for them? Um, and so this revisionism, um, as, as you already sort of referenced, implies restoring agency to Vietnamese people. Um, so just because the, these are Vietnamese people who are taking actions and trying to uh, sort of uh, uh, achieve their goals, you, you see them as, as active agents rather than just passive um, entities that were, you know, being done to or or by by Americans who came in to to you know help them, um, so so I think that um, that um, that you this is giving us a fuller picture of the war of of Vietnamese history and and of South Vietnam. Absolutely, um, and I think there's a it's an interesting analogy with the French colonial era. Uh, in the historiography, because uh, so much of it, I mean, I, I play a role in that, but like focusing on the French state, you're going to, you're going to get 
you're going to, you're going to marginalize um, Vietnamese perspective and agency and so forth. And, you know, that kind of work should be read in conjunction with work that, that does work with the Vietnamese sources and puts the people at, at the center. And so I think that's an interesting parallel because yeah, so much of the historiography of South Vietnam focused on the American war, um, you know, dismisses dismissive of Diem or the other South Vietnamese leaders as American puppets. And, you know, like really sort of like, kind of over the top stereotypes of corruption and so forth doesn't mean that there wasn't corruption there but like that 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 becomes the only thing that you talk about when you talk about the south is you know historiographically um it's just really condescending you know it creates a really condescending narrative of these people who as you trying to say are are people trying to make decisions and have agency so i, I anyway i I find this this new wave of work just such an important corrective to um to what well, we received and and also I think that maybe there's a little bit of politics in there too you know like much of the uh, the scholarship uh, is by scholars who are you know very hostile to um, uh, the South Vietnamese regime on political grounds and so forth and and sort of like the the sort of soft left Cold War politics influencing that. Um, uh, absolutely yeah and, and, i think and, so i think the because if you look at when the sort of the scholarship emerged right it was still during the the war they tell Anne, and there were still sort of americans i mean rightly because it affected them so personally like they were trying to figure out why their countries did what they what the, the leaders did what they did trying to figure it out trying to you know the, what they saw the destruction the violence and you know wanting to criticize their own government and by in focusing so much on their american government and 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 officials um i think they they didn't have didn't pay attention enough to the south vietnamese vietnamese and see what they were doing and so there was this political personal thing that was happening and yeah yeah, no, I, I think I, that's part of it. Yeah, I, I think you can look at my family and see that. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, we're we're the same age. We had these are some of our earliest memories, and you know, my dad was you know very hostile to the war, and um, you know, just I, I, I as a child got a lot of these stereotypical images from him, just as the way they talked about the uh, the South Vietnamese regime. Well, um, I mean, it's hard for yeah for me too. I mean, I grew up in a family that. We, you know, my parents didn't talk about the war, but I knew that we were anti-communist, that they were anti-communist and they didn't want to live in a communist country. And yeah. but then, you know, in 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 this in scholarship in popular media, I get this other image of South Vietnam as this horror, you know, this this place of corruption and there's nothing redeemable about South Vietnam. And but I was like, well, <laughs> you know, what's the difference? <laughs> North and South Vietnamese are they're people and why is like one so heroic and the other so uh there are people, you know. people carrying on their lives making decisions in difficult situations outside of their control um falling in love having children exactly going to get food yeah. in the way i mean it's like it it just i i think the colon history of colonialism and the history of the cold war has done a real disservice to the historical agency of just so many average people because you have these these dominant things in there. Um, anyway, <laughs> so, so anyway, that, so, but the good news is that you and your colleagues are providing this amazing corrective, uh, to the historiography. So, um, what would be your elevator pitch? Your sort of, your sort of two minute, um, you know, explanation of the argument in, uh, between war and the state. 
Okay. <laughs> this is tough. <laughs> okay. I'm going to start the clock. Go. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so this book is about ordinary people and their associational activities in wartime South Vietnam, a society that has until recently been largely ignored, misunderstood, and or misrepresented. My book demonstrates that South Vietnam had a functioning society that was diverse, robust, and contested. People of disparate politics, faith, circumstances were active trying to improve their lives and the lives of others in their community. Um, the book also shows that despite the challenges of the war, state repression and external political forces, which included the United States and the DRV, civil society still managed to exist and function. Many participants realized that to operate, they needed to stay within the law set up by the government and perform civic work that were in line with the states. However, you, you had groups that skirted the law, operated without official recognition, or disguised their activities in clever ways. Um, so the book shows the diverse ways and methods groups use uh, to navigate the political milieu of uh, South Vietnam. Um, and um, the book also um, demonstrates that because of the war and the contested nature of South Vietnam's public sphere, the government did not have a monopoly on, on persuasive um, and coercive power. Uh, and so for the state to maintain its hegemony and some modicum of moral authority, it had to compromise to some extent with civil society. Um, the state had to make allowances in order for um, to win people's support um, and also to relent uh, to rights groups and to temper its course of tactics. Um, and you also, in, in addition to the, the government, you also had the United States and the DRV, the, the North, North Vietnam and its, um, its allies, then the National Liberation in the South, or, or some people call them the Viet Cong. They were also active in the public sphere, trying to influence and win over uh, civil groups, uh, civil society groups. Um, so, so there's this, this, that's what I mean by contested in terms of like different uh, political forces. So basically, my my book provides sort of a an empirical sort of, um, you know understanding of South Vietnam, both these groups happening, you know, the, the sort of basic history, you know, but it also investigates. Uh, what um, the, the working of civil society in a place like Viet, South Vietnam, where there was warfare, when there was some state repression, and where there are were um, external political forces trying to have influence uh, in this in this uh, society. Yeah, Is that two yeah, minutes? Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, 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 I think you did it. I actually, I didn't really set a timer. And no, and I mean, I, I think just like it, the title is just so brilliant and it really captures kind of what we were talking about a minute ago is the experience of these average people's lives as they're dealing with these two really difficult situations. I mean, <laughs> to understatement, difficult situation of, of the war, but also the difficulties of the Vietnamese state and the, you know, the repression, the, the, the period of sort of um, a steady series of a revolving door with officers in between the two republics. And, and, you know, what, 
so much of the historiography in the English language focuses on the war for obvious reasons, right? Um, or on the state um, and focusing on, you know, these big figures. But what about what about the average people and where did they exercise their authority and focusing on these associational groups and uh, and charity groups and and so forth, I think it's just a really, really brilliant way. And again, it's, it's such a great echo to... Um, to in search of moral authority, your first book. Um, so we see once again, you know, here's here is a way to find um, a window into these uh, these people's lives that isn't mediated by the state archive or the military archive or, or what have you. So you you uh, you start off with an introduction, and um, uh, we set some of the sort of theoretical and methodological. Um, um, uh, perspectives, and then you give a, a really concise yet I thought very nuanced history of South Vietnam, which I um I'm I might pull sections of that to uh, to give to my undergraduates in my Southeast Asia class because I thought it was just you know uh, fair and balanced. Okay, I don't want to don't want to use that uh, fair and balanced, but it was it was sophisticated and nuanced yet yet concise. Right, it we didn't we didn't get lost in wormholes. And then um then you have a couple chapters that look at sociability and associational life, um, the performance of social services and voluntary efforts and community development. Um, and those are make up about three chapters. What are the key points uh, from these three chapters that you want to make? Oh, uh, yeah. So so th these chapters um, just feature, feature an array of different activities that people uh, participated in. So from mutual aid, recreational, same place origin groups, ceremonial groups, professional groups, charities, um, civic organizations. Uh, and the obvious point that, that this these chapters make um, is that people in South Vietnam, despite difficulties, um, they were highly involved in civic, civic and public life. Um, some were performing uh, you know, forming groups to protect themselves. So, you know, they they were looking after their own interests, but others were um, looking after other people's interests. You know, the 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 the, the orphans, the widows. Uh, so the you know, they're just diverse ways that people were were uh, interacting with others in society. I was um, and um, and so these uh, so that's sort of on 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 that on that level and, and it may appear kind of, uh, you know, not earth shattering to say, oh, people got involved in organizations and and, and they were very different. Um, but, you know, considering what we just talked about uh, South Vietnam and its representation is, is one dimensional, I think this is a very useful corrective to sort of look at this and see what people yeah. are doing. I mean, it's, um, it's, 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 mm -hmm. it's paradigm uh, shattering in the historiography. It's like, oh, you know, like if you just look at the existing historiography, there's just the state or the war, right? So. Yeah. And, and I think it's also like, you know, in terms of comparing with other societies at war, too, to say that what were people do in terms of coping with the war? Were they just, you know, um, giving up and, and or, you know, but, you know, you see that these groups are just operating as if life would go on as normal. And it goes back to your question, I mean, what were people thinking would, you know, would Vietnam be, con you know, always divided? And I think that that was the mentality people during war time is that this is not our you know, this is not going to be forever. We're not going to always be at war. So we need to cope with it. We need to form bonds and go on with our life. You know, it's okay to have like a, a recreational group, maybe a dance group or something, a singing group, a choir group. Um, and so people 
continue with their lives. And and some people um, were um, forming groups to help others that had been devastated by war, um, you know, the orphans and widows, um, war widows, um, and others were trying to develop their society in more sustainable ways. Um, you know, we had, the, there were groups like the District 8 Development Project that was trying to uh, build schools and improve the the region, the neighborhood, but they were also trying to instill in people this sort of uh, the empower the people in the region to take charge and take responsibility for their own um, lives. Um, and so they were doing sort of more uh, in depth sort of development. They were they very. Um, that that group was uh, influenced by a community development um, ideology, you know, that was popular in the 1950s and 60s. And so you had groups like that, or you had groups like the Buddhist, um, <clears throat> the Buddhist the School of Youth for Rural Development, um, something uh, a school that was associated with the um, um, uh, and and they were also trying to um, change people's mindsets in terms of you know taking responsibility for their own development uh, and um, in, in, and so they were um, sending youth into the countryside to learn and work with uh, with villagers um, to improve their lives. So you had such a diverse uh, um, groups and, and activists uh, operating at different levels and with different ideology, different sort of goals and 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 aspirations. Um, and so I, I also, these chapters always so look at how, um, how some of these groups that were not so much um, in line with the state's uh, goals and, and, and ideology or politics, how they sort of cope with that and um, how some groups uh, interacted with American um, agencies and government. Some of them work closely. Some of them receive aid from the government. Um, some actually had a CIA um, agent working very closely with them. So um, others um, were more uh, sort of left wing. Um, some had uh, communists infiltrating their groups. And, and so you know how how did the so that yeah so the that was the the purpose uh the points of those chapters yeah you know i i <laughs> recently did an interview with um Foshuk po um who's a, a scholar of chinese cinema and he just wrote a book about hong kong cinema in the 1960s and it's it's so similar to what you were just describing because here's this this way in which uh local hong kongers are developing their own culture, expressing agency. They're in this period of flux and there's all these other groups sort of infiltrating. Um, you know, there's some, they don't know that like some funding CIA and some funding's coming from the PRC and so forth. Yet the emphasis is upon these individuals trying to build a life and and navigate these larger historical forces and not letting the, the historical narrative get caught up in that trap. So I, I really wow. appreciated those, uh, those oh, chapters. That sounds interesting. Yeah. 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 It was, it was really, really interesting. Um, uh, chapter five looks at student and so, uh, social and political activism. Um, what do you offer here in terms of um, student activism? 
Okay, yeah. Um, just so, just so the listeners know that there there is a shorter version of this chapter published in the Journal of Vietnamese Studies, um, but this chapter has more information, more research included. Um, and, and anyway, they should, and they should rush out and buy the book and, and ask, <laughs> ask their libraries to buy the book. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, anyway, uh, so this this again, it, I think underscores like the the diverse nature and the robust nature of South Vietnam civil society. Um, high school students, university students, they were extraordinarily uh, active. Um, they participated in uh, student unions, um, also in their specific um, uh, school clubs like or discipline clubs. They had the physics clubs, you know, the, the med school students club. Um, they also participated in civic organizations and also charities. Uh, they were always uh, at the forefront when there was a big fundraiser going on. Um, they were extremely vocal and, and impressively savvy um, in, in getting media attention. Um, and I focus not only on the politically active students, uh, which tend to get a lot of uh, media attention, but also uh, on the youth who participated in civic, civic and social work projects, the less uh, overtly political stuff. Um, and I, I do this because, you know, getting active in, in South Vietnam was, was really difficult. I mean, uh, it was could be dangerous, um, especially if you start uh, being involved in politics uh, because you could get in trouble with the government if the government thinks your group is too communist or too friendly with communists. You could get in trouble with the communists if they think you're a stooge of the government. Uh, and so there were examples of, of students being targeted by both sides. Um, uh, students who were harassed by NLF agents and some were assassinated. So, you know, the, the getting involved was, was dangerous. And so many students shy away from getting involved at all. But when they get involved, they tend to go with things like charity work or civic work because that's considered to be safer. Um, so I, I wanted to, to just widen the lens and, and, and see the, uh, you know, include them. Um, and, and it just, it shows that again, like they, they were, dynamic, they were uh, concerned about their society uh, and, and they got involved. And of course, like in other societies, when, when people get involved in, in voluntary organizations, you know, they have multiple motives. Some, you know, they do it because they just are bored and want to have some social interaction. Some because when you get involved, there's chances of making good connections, social connections that may lead to jobs and, you know, opportunities. So there's, there's, um, but others were got involved because of altruistic reasons, you know, they want to help uh, out or they, they want to improve their society. So um, I, I'm not saying that, you know, in Vietnam, people got involved because they were all, you know, really uh, concerned, always concerned about others. Uh, you know, I, I think, I'm again, I'm giving them humanity just like everyone else. There's different motives, um, and, and sometimes they do things for multiple motives at the same time. It's not necessarily one or the other. So, but the fact that they did get involved, and again, like the other groups, how did the students navigate the different forces um, impinging upon them? Inf you know, trying to influence them or trying to shut them down. So, absolutely, and you know, sometimes mm -hmm. we we don't really know why we belong to certain groups or do certain things. It was sort of what you know, just the the social expectation, like things that operate 
that we, we don't uh, contemplate so much. Um, uh, the next chapter discusses the media campaign around the so-called Highway of Horrors project. Um, please tell us about the Songtan newspapers, and forgive my pronunciation there, um, and, and this campaign. Okay. Uh, it's probably my favorite chapter because uh, I learned so much by doing it because I didn't know anything about this newspaper or the 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 massacre that took place along Highway One. And so, when, um, and when, I think it's important to know when this is too. Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, so Tsongtan uh, is the name of the newspaper, and it means tsunami. Um, and this is a, a daily newspaper, um, very unique in the history of Vietnamese newspaper because it was a cooperative cooperative newspaper established for the sole purpose of exposing corruption among officials. And they 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 um they got started in the in 1970, uh, and it was a grassroots type of of, of newspaper that um, um that had the purpose of a very particular purpose. And in the summer of 1972, during the Easter Offensive, Songtan spearheaded a major voluntary project to collect and bury bodies of those killed by North Vietnamese troops um, in late March. So um, in late March 1972, the the, the North Vietnamese um, mounted a, a major operation, major um, Offensive, like a three-prong offensive that that really uh, took South Vietnam by surprise. It you know it uh, the North Vietnamese uh, uh, went over the DMZ and attacked uh, the, the Guangxi province, and they also attacked from from the west um, through Cambodia. And so, um, and, then, and then sorry to interrupt, but in this just in terms of the the narrative of the war, this is in the 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 last stage of the so-called Vietnamization project. So um, there's fewer American troops and more South Vietnamese troops in the field facing facing this um, facing this uh, uh, invasion from the north. That's or, right. Or this That's operation. right. So is it de- definitely mm-hmm. a uh, an Arvin or Army Republic of Vietnam campaign and and less uh, mm-hmm. an American military. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the the Americans provided air support in air support. In, in, in the counteroffensive, and and it it provided uh, it was, you know their air support was 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 necessary was yeah. really and, uh, and, critical so, in that. Yeah, so, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted mm-hmm. to you know kind of dispel some of the the mm-hmm. the the images we get so much of the from the American language historiography of the war of it you know just being this American project. This is this is really on the on the ground. South Vietnamese troops that are that are facing this. Yeah, sorry, yeah sorry thank you for yeah. that. No, yeah. no, no, absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, this is what, an instant where you really see Vietnamese on Vietnamese violence. So you don't see that again, like you said, it's it's always American versus the the North Vietnamese or the 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 NLF. But this is where you see. Vietnamese on Vietnamese violence, and and there's lots of examples of that. I, I I think we should you know focus more on that as well because at the core of this war, it was a civil war, war that you know Vietnamese couldn't you know did not agree with each other about the, the sort of the political direction of their country, and and this started back in the French colonial period. This sort of just you know this the disagreement, this different views and, and perspectives so you had you know on one hand the communists and you have the on the other hand the people who were very anti-communist so so this um anyway well going back to 1972 and, and the east offensive so um when the north attacked 
Guangxi province, which is on the border between North and South, uh, in late March, um, people started fleeing the province, uh, the provincial capital, Guangxi City. And so thousands of people were leaving that city along Highway 1, and they were shot at by uh, North Vietnamese troops. Um, there were military um, personnel and vehicles leaving um, the city as well, and they were along the highway. But overall, there was a lot of civilians on that highway, and so thousands of people died. But um, because of the war and because uh, the, uh, the South Vietnamese lost control of, uh, of part of this province, those people, those bodies were left on the highway until July, when the Arvin got regained this um, control of this area, and so that was when some reporters got to this re this highway, this stretch of highway, and they saw all these dead bodies, and and so um, you which know is, some which has as resonance in, in a number of ways. I mean, there, it for any any people. I mean, that's horrifying, but. In terms of Vietnamese burial practices, that's also a, a, a bad death without, without orientalizing, essentializing too much. But there's there, there's a cultural specificity there, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, for, uh, that's that's absolutely right that, you know, people believe that, you know, if, if you don't, you're not buried, your body is not buried in a proper way without rituals um, that you uh, are essentially condemned to just roaming uh, the earth and not not get any you know um, any peace and so I mean it, it's just horrifying for people to think of their loved ones um, being left there and that their their the spirits of their loved ones are not at peace um, and so so that's that's another dimension which should propel people to act and then sometimes decided that they're gonna do this job they're gonna organize they're gonna fundraise you know buy things like body bags, uh, built uh, coffins, uh, and they got people to help. People donated. Um, it's really amazing. Uh, people writing in to say, you know, here is five, you know, five uh, dong to help you or, you know, equivalent of like maybe $2. Um, market women um pull their money together to send into the newspaper. The newspaper actually had to say, hey, we fundraise enough. We don't need any more money. Stop sending us money. <laughs> because like you said, that that aspect of, of dying a bad death was was so um so so terrible that people wanted to help. And so they raised money and they 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 collected bodies and they buried them uh, at a, a a cemetery and the the leftover money that they got they had leftover money they built a, a stele to honor um, these um, these people who had um, been massacred and so it's um it's just a really impressive on on, on both ways in, in both a couple of ways um you know the newspaper itself was very impressive in, in what it was trying to do uh the people who supported the, this newspaper when it was first founded I mean, it showed that people really wanted good journalism. They wanted clean government, and and they were going to pay money to help this happen. And then, of course, this um, the, the 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 project too. It 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 gives us insight into the violence at war in terms of how it affected people, and it shows that you know people were were moved to do something about it. Um, 
Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I, yeah, no, I, I found that a really powerful chapter and, and encapsulated so many of these big themes of the, of the book. Um, and um, the last full chapter looks at the struggle for rights and freedoms in the 1970s and you know what, what changes in the 1970s and, and how are things are, what, what's this, this section about? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, about the 1970s, things just got really worse. The, the, um, after the the debt offensive took place in the winter of 1968 and and that was when um so we're going back in time before the easter offensive so so in 68 um the uh, the drv uh, launched a, a major offensive that involved a lot of activities from the uh, participation from the nlf uh, at this point too and so they attacked a you know all the towns and cities in south vietnam um again um took the South by surprise and, and the Americans uh, by surprise. And so after this, uh, the United States, um, there was a lot of, in the United States, there was a lot of uh, backlash against uh, the government because the people were were distrustful of the government uh, up to that point. They thought the war was going well, et cetera, et cetera. So um, P- President Lyndon Johnson announced that he wouldn't run anymore uh, for the nomination. Um, the President uh, and so, um, so the, the that was happening in in the United States. Uh, and this the the dead offensive really bolstered the anti-war movement. So Nixon ca- came into power, um, and and he was promising peace with honor. He was going to take the the troops out of Vietnam, uh, and Vietnamization began uh, in full force uh, under him. And so basically, uh, the the Arvin took over a lot of the fighting. So you had that happening, and with the American sort of leaving they started to pull you know troops out of vietnam uh, during this time so um that had an effect on the military aspect of the war but also the economic aspect of the war so people felt this sort of like oh americans are pulling out like you know we have less businesses we have less need for there's less need for hotels and you know all these things had well, an impact started, on, on the american war yeah. Effort, right? in, yeah. in, in a in a society where I mean, the, I forget the exact percentage, but the number of people who've become refugees within South Vietnam because of the fighting, because of the war and the destruction of the agricultural sector. Um, yeah, to, to have that American money pulled out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just just the, the things that they'd been used to. So you had that going on. Um, and because uh, after that, um, the government expanded the military draft. So you had the youth sort of really anxious so you know um so in um uh, before 1968 you you know people from 20 to 25 served uh for 36 months uh, but our, uh, in 1968 the general mobilization law uh, was introduced to include men from 18 years old to 33 so you had a large range um and they 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 also you know suspended military discharge except for health problems um, they required the government required high school students to serve in the reserves or in the um, self-defense force, and they were also required to take part in military training. So a lot more militarization of youth of high school students, and that you know was was an had an impact on students and parents were worried about their kids. So and then you had. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, and there, there was, of course, the oil embargo at this time period that affected, you know, the world. So, 
economically things were bad, military things were dismal, you know, and people were scared um, for their kids being uh, drafted. And so um, there was more scrutiny of military and, and political political leaders, um, either because there's more corruption or because people were tired of it and were wanting to expose corruption and, and greed. And so there was a lot more focus on that. Uh, you see uh, civil groups taking to the streets, um, um, protesting against, uh, for example, uh, prison, um, how prisons were run, how students, uh, certain uh, dissident students and, and actors was, were being treated in, 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 in jail. And, and so you have this sort of re response uh, in civil society um, and also uh, sort of uh, groups were also galvanized to to criticize the elite um uh, there were groups uh, you know pointed out how how corrupt um political leaders were and one of the leading person was father Jan Hu Tan, uh, who 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 condemned the president himself uh, uh, and his family so he had a, a list of of charges against uh, Tio and his family um uh, and and so the press got involved because because the press was told not to publish his 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 list of 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 grievances or or con condemnation, and the press uh, w was of course fighting back for against this 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 clampdown. Uh, at the same time, because of um, and after the the Easter offensive, knowing uh, to also. Um, brought in more restrictions on on freedom of the press uh, freedom of expression uh, and, and and other uh, re repressive policies um, that he you know justified by saying because of you know we've been attacked we're um, during this um, in 1972 so all these things sort of created this 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 atmosphere this situation where you had civil groups taking to the streets and 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 fighting for different issues you know freedom more freedom uh, clean government and 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 a more um, accountability um, so this this chapter really shows that you know the civil society was still strong even toward the end of the war uh, and and in 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 a period when the government was really trying to shut it down yeah um, i think it's such an important mm -hmm. intervention in just sort of the conventional uh understanding of this time period because it's so easy to fall into these teleological traps that we all know that april 30th 1975 is coming that this is this period is you know that yeah, you know, after the Americans pull out in what January of uh, '73, that this 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 kind of gets forgotten about, right? And I mean, you know, that just in terms of American popular culture, I mean, I can only I can think of only two references to this time period, and then one's more well known, like the the Deer Hunter, right? They go back there at the end of that film, and then I think Joan Didion has a novel that is partially set in uh, in um, South Vietnam in this time period, but that's just forgotten. You know, in North American, you know, popular memory, right? And then also, I think in the historiography, it gets, it gets pushed aside because it's because we know what's coming, right? And yeah. so seeing yeah. what people were doing and the and decisions they were making and the the struggles they were facing with the the South Vietnamese state and and so forth, like mm. I, I found a really valuable contribution. Yeah, to yeah, that. yeah. I I know, and, and I keep having to remind myself that you know 
they didn't know that it was going to end in nine in 75 right so so they kept fighting for you know trying to make you know trying to actualize what they think a good society should look like right so they, they continue because we we know that oh in april everything's gonna you know you're gonna lose it everything but they, they didn't know that and um, yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and then also, you know, that when when that final military invasion comes in in early seventy five, it's so quick, and, and you know, even even catches Hanoi by surprise at how quick it goes. Uh, I was able to march south, so um, yeah, it's just 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 as historians, we really have to engage in a project to put ourselves in the mind of these individuals who don't know what what's to come and 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 so forth anyway i just i just found that really valuable and um challenged a lot of sort of my thinking and definitely will i i believe improve my teaching of the subject so thank you for that uh, that thank section. you for those kind words yeah. yeah so you've been really generous with your time i've got uh two questions before i let you go these are the standard uh new book okay. de- debriefing questions um um first would you suggest two books for the audience um mm. Okay. Um, so I think these books are uh, forefront in my mind because I'm making up my um, Vietnam War um, syllabus. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> so good. the first is uh, Nguyen Jan's new book uh, called um, Disunion. I'm, I'm looking for it. Um, and I think it's it, it really does a great job of really um, situating um, anti-communist Vietnamese nationalism uh, in the colonial period in sort of like showing the origin of this uh, earlier on before the Vietnam War and and sort of challenging the idea that uh, communist um, the communist movement was sort of the only legitimate and you know uh, inheritor of Vietnamese nationalism and that you know there was you know she really shows that there's this development of 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 different ideologies um in the colonial period, uh, and and one of them happened to be a very a staunch anti-communist strain that continued into the South Vietnam. I think, and and just, it's quite uh, it's, it's like thoroughly researched and and high quality stuff that um, I think that will, I uh, you know set the 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 tone for what's come you know in terms of how we look at South Vietnam. So that's that's yeah. one. And that's it's such an important mm-hmm. historiographic intervention mm-hmm. too, because for obvious reasons, the growth of the the Communist Party has has been studied so much, and and yeah, has been overemphasized to the, the marginalized. And, and, and could you just repeat the title and, and the author? Oh, um, yeah. Disunion, Disunion, and her name is uh, An Chan. T R A N is her last name. T R A N. Yeah, and. The other one is uh, Pure Aslan's book. It's it's a this is very different in terms of um, uh, his is uh, Vietnam's American War, and I use that um, to give students a good overview of the war from the DRV. Uh, and and you know he he he's written a number of books already on 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 North Vietnam, and so this is more of a I see it's more of a synthesis, although there's a lot of primary research. It's is very. Uh, it's brief, but it's it's it has a lot of details, and it's it's a great book to sh- just introduce students to the war. Uh, but of course, it is focused mostly on the DRV, um, but but I think very useful. So I, those are sort of the two uh, the books I, I would recommend. Yeah, and and listeners mm-hmm. can dive into the new books archive and find my conversation with Pierre 
which um, I think was one of my first podcasts for um, new books. And uh, he, he's an old buddy too, um, uh, a, a late, later archive buddy from a uh, from from this century. Not, not, not the last century when we were oh there. Oh my god! Don't say that. <laughs> did, that, that so... did that give you an existential crisis? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now, f- finally, uh, what are you working on now, uh, and what can we hope to see from you next? Um, I've been working on a book uh, on the the war, and at this time, I'm, I'm focusing on the North as well. I want to just write. I'm, I'm I'm more of a a, a synthesis a book that students can pick up and read and learn about more of a so- the social cultural aspect of of the war. Um, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's I, fantastic. I really, I, I'm really looking forward to that. And I, I just appreciate your perspective and your, again, your historiographic intervention and finding the wedge between, you know, these, these big state forces or military forces that dominate. So that I think that'll be mm-hmm. fantastic. Great. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. I was very nervous before, but uh, <laughs> it was very fun. <laughs> uh, well, Vaughn, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really All right. It. You too. Okay. I hope to see you long before another 25 years, okay? Yeah, let's hope so. Okay. okay take so, care. Um, th- this has been a conversation with uh, Vaughn Yuan Marshall about uh, Between War and the State, Vietnamese Voluntary Association in South Vietnam. 1954 to 1975, out with Cornell in 2023. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.